Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Stories of S's. We are so glad you're listening to us today. I'm Gabby. And I'm Daniel. I hope you're having a good time. I want to take a moment to thank everyone who is listening and just to celebrate our launch of the episode. If you haven't already, we really recommend you listen to our latest episodes, whether you are on your way to work, doing your chores, or just playing these episodes to help you fall asleep. Trust us. We get it. And don't forget, if you have like a specific person we should talk about or you feel like that would be good to talk about, send it to us. We will check if it fits and the topic might be on the podcast. Yeah, you never know. Please go ahead and message us on Instagram at stories of S's or email us at stories of S's at gmail.com. Today, we are talking about the Gothic princess. And if that's not clue enough, she's the creator of Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Daniel, what do you know about Mary Shelley or her most infamous creation just off the top of your head? Well, just a little bit. I mean, it Frankenstein's pretty relevant today, the book. So you probably wonder, like, when it's from and this lady i think she lived in the 19th century like 18th to 19th century so it's pretty old already but the book's still pretty famous i know that there are a bunch of movies out there from like almost 100 years old to probably like up to now still recreating the content so pretty relevant frankenstein story and his monster story is very relevant today and I'm just so excited to share it with all of you guys. We were inspired by all the Frankensteins we saw on Halloween weekend. And all of the stuff all of the stuff we saw in Target. <laughs> and just because she is such a badass. So today we are going to dive into her history and what better way to spend our time than sharing it with you. This week's resources are Britannica.com. Mary Shelley and Gothic Feminism, The Case of the Mortal Immortal by Diane Hoover at Marquette University. Passages in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein Toward a Feminist Figure of Humanity um, by Claudia Pond and Biography.com. Thank you all so much. The life of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley is one of many successes and overcoming many difficulties. Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin that's her maiden name, was born on August 30th, 1797 to radical reformers and writers William Godwin and her mother's name was also Mary Wollstonecraft. Her parents were, in their own right, fighting for a new and improved world in which their daughter could thrive. However, the woes of Mary Shelley began early on. After only 11 days of being born, her mother passed away and Mary was left behind with her father, and later his second wife and horrible, horrible stepmother. She wasn't educated in the traditional sense, as her stepmother didn't see it fit to have her be educated at all. But that didn't stop Mary from educating herself through reading and taking advantage of her father's extensive library. This ignited Mary's passion for writing, and something stirred in her that never quite settled. And her very first poem was publicized in 1807. And for those of you who struggle with math, 
She was born in 1797, and her first poem was published in 1807, which means she was... Ten. Ten. Good job. Oof. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure, guys. (laughs) As a teenager, she traveled from England to Scotland to visit a family friend. And there, in 1812, she met her future hubby and poet, Percy Shelley. And after two years of having an affair with the then-married Percy, they fled with her sister from England, and this caused quite the chasm in the family. William Godwin, her dad, took this harshly and did not speak to Mary for years to come. I think that was also part of the reason, or part of the reason was that her husband, her new husband, was basically one of her dad's friends oh, yeah. or like a political follower at least in that sense so he is significantly older than she is oh yeah if i didn't really mention that but percy shelley was in his like 30s and mary shelley or mary wollstonecraft godwin at that point was a teenager so they fell in love and her dad saw that as a betrayal really from kind of the both of them right i feel like i don't know do you exactly know how old she was when they started to do stuff because i feel like back 200 almost 230 years ago i don't know if like such a big gap in age it was probably not as weird as it would be nowadays well she was 15 so that is weird and also he was married, so that's that's double weird. Okay, fine. It doesn't matter when. <laughs> During their relationship and marriage, Mary lost her first child and was in a deep mourning for a long time. You know, losing her child was another person that she lost, especially because her mom, before Mary Shelley was born... Her mom tried to unalive herself and two years later she was born um, and then right immediately after she lost her mom and that was such a heartbreak for her even though she wasn't old enough to remember um, but she carried that pain with her and then the loss of her first child was, was really harsh. This pain grew exponentially especially when their second child, a son, died at the age of three. But in between that time, she did have a third child. And through these pains and losses, whilst hiding away in the Swiss Alps with her husband and friend and poet, Lord Byron, they were obsessed with swapping and retelling German horror stories that were later translated into French, which was the translation that they were reading. And I had no clue that there were German horror stories back in the beginning of the 19th century, right? And for those of you who don't know, Daniel... Your co-host is from Germany. <laughs> I just know about like the scary child, how would you call it? Stories kind of, right? Yeah. Brother Grimm and all the type of things um, you would read to kids and they'd and be that like, one guy that gets behave. This little kid that gets his you know, his fingers just Oh yeah, Strobel Peter. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Because he was not behaving. He was not. Let's continue. It was then that Lord Byron in the midst of them swapping these German horror stories, suggested that they hold a competition of sorts, 
Each member present, albeit three of them, was to create a modern horror story that could rival their favorites. So Lord Byron wrote Vampire, which later influenced the creation of Dracula. And Mary Shelley created Frankenstein. This story became a part of her and many critics and biographers claim it to be very autobiographical. If you don't know the story, the story of Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, which is the full title, is told in the perspective of three male characters. Walton, the sea voyager that runs into Frankenstein and writes his story down. Frankenstein, the scientist himself retelling the story and explaining how he got there and Frankenstein's monster, who we know so well and has been depicted in pop culture hundreds, if not thousands of times. It's important to know that Mary Shelley was writing the story in the midst of a third pregnancy and after the loss of her first child. This gothic horror novel was one of the first science fiction stories, and it impacted culture as we know it. In the book, Frankenstein is enamored with his own ambition intelligence, and holding the secret that he would create something new, something wonderful. And this turns out to be his monster. Not sure if that was so wonderful, but at least in scientific terms, it's probably wonderful. I mean, to him, it was the idea, not so much the execution right. and the consequences. He right. was just like, I know how to do it. And I think that's so, just the idea of creating this monster and coming from the author, right? To to think that way, to create life mm -hmm. from dead body parts, which were collected from the graveyard, mm -hmm, to yeah. create something. I think it's so advanced when it comes to thinking that you can create something out of this, but also very old in the style of, How, how you would come there. Oh, right. Like, the techniques <laughs> were very much 19th century techniques. Absolutely. And then I think they used some, like, uh, uh, lightning, right, to get the electricity running through all the parts to then light the monster. Yeah, to make it come to life. Absolutely. Um, so, if you read it, it is a, little, is a bit cheesy in in the terms of what we know as science fiction now and what was science fiction then yeah it was basically completely new i think some of the people that the book critics they are saying like this was the first or one of the first science fiction books ever on the market right mm -hmm. and there were millions of copies sold and her intention mary's intention was that it's a horror story so it i think is, yeah the perception of horror and science fiction changed over time Oh, absolutely. So what was horror for them was probably imagining that something like this could be created, probably also putting it into context with the industrial revolution that was going on at the same time, mm -hmm. right? You you start to have machines, you're probably starting to be a little concerned, like what's going to happen, right? There's always this type of uncertainty whenever right. there's new technology and like a technology leap. And <clears throat> nowadays... It's more like a science fiction book because it's not 
scary in that type of sense like as it was scary back then right and and that's something that i really want to highlight is what daniel said is what lord byron what percy shelley thought as horror was not what mary shelley thought as horror like you said Mm -hmm. she's seeing a lot of stuff going on in her life a lot of stuff going on in everybody else's life in culture and society and those for her are the true horrors the ones that we can see the real horrors that basically keep haunting you you your whole life if you are unfortunate yeah and absolutely and a quick you know history lesson you know the industrial revolution helped us leap into technology that we couldn't have gone from with older methods you know like if you look at the progression of technology in the past it took several hundreds of years of decades of perfecting it of doing it of you know using it but the industrial revolution just sped all that up you know it was an exponential growth something that hadn't been done before and it always gives you the baseline right once you got everything established you basically have the baseline achieved to then start the next leap Exactly. So you're already at an advantage. However, when the monster is created, it breaks Frankenstein because as soon as he sees his monster come to life, he flees and he just leaves the monster to fend for himself. And for lack of better words, he abandons his creation. He abandons his quote unquote child. And so spoilers ahead. So if you don't want to hear what happens... I recommend you skip, skip, skip. Frankenstein monster kills his creator's brother and frames a girl in their town. And But the truth is only known to the scientist Frankenstein. In a plea for a truce, he finds his monster and confronts him. In this confrontation, the monster tells his story and he tells Frankenstein how he learned to read and speak after being left alone. He went into the woods and after listening to a family learned to read, write, and speak in French. He yearned for that care and gentle nature of having a family. And so he decided that he wanted to reveal himself to the family that he thought was almost his own. So to Frankenstein's family, right? No, no, no. To this family in the woods. Oh, yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. He revealed himself. They rejected him. And his heart turned cold. And a a hate for humanity grew in him. From then on, he vowed to find his creator and seek retribution, and which is why he killed the scientist's brother. But the scientist pleaded with him, and his monster finally revealed that, okay, what he wanted was a partner, and that his creator should make him a wife and caretaker, and so Frankenstein agreed. So Frankenstein went ahead with one of his friends to find pieces for his monster's partner, And he gathered all the pieces, again, from robbing graves. And right as he was about to bring her to life, a realization came to him. He realized that if this creature was like his original monster, it would not be fair to force her into a partnership she might not even want. And rejection she didn't ask for as a second monster. Because remember, creating this monster doesn't make her look pretty you know frankenstein's monster isn't handsome and And she's gonna get this rejection from society that she didn't even ask for yeah that's true on the other hand i mean 
she's probably also not that handsome if you are put together from different body that's, parts. That's what I'm saying. She and she's going to receive that rejection. So there's going to be a lot of rejection. And I mean, the Frank Sensmonts are already experienced that with the family, right? And made them really frustrated. So not that great of a combination. Yeah. So the scientist is basically like, why would I repeat this for someone who apparently when I bring them to life has autonomy, has a consciousness, has a, you know, will. Mm -hmm. um, what am I actually bringing this creation in for? Yeah. So it is then that he took her apart and this enraged his monster and led him to kill Frankenstein's friend who was there helping him create the monster's partner. The scientists realized that his unchecked ambition and arrogance was his own undoing and it led him to the present where he is met with Walton, the sea voyager. So after telling him everything that has led to this point, he asks that Walton find his monster and set things right. Walton, the voyager and transcriber, finds the monster and after his initial interaction with him, he realizes that the monster actually regrets all of his acts of violence, of selfishness, of hatred and repents. He then tells the voyager that he would go to the North Pole and light himself on fire so that no one repeats his creator's mistake and he wouldn't be able to hurt anyone ever again. Love that dramatic extra there. I would go to the North Pole before I burn myself. Well, he just didn't want like other scientists to see him and like study him and figure out how to make another monster, how to make right. their own monsters. Right. I think there was also another thought um, of the scientist Frankenstein when he decided to not bring the bride of Frankenstein's monster, so the partner for Frankenstein's monster, to life. Mm -hmm. It was because he was not sure what was going to happen if he would create two monsters, one male, one female. So this would basically be the start of creating a new species. And he was... Yeah thinking about that at the very end at least not in the aftermath but right before it happened and i guess it was a smart choice though yeah and but what he was really thinking what frankenstein was really thinking because he saw how much like his monster was just like salivating at the idea of having a partner and a caretaker frankenstein realized like this monster is only being created for my monster not as like a separate entity and not as a separate person so to speak right i'm literally just making her for this guy agree and it's not fair to her that he might be awful to her he might be you know mean and he's like i can't subject her to that not only him the monster but like the people right yeah i feel like he realized he already made that mistake once and then it was not in the same context of creating a partner, but in the same context of being rejected from society as the monster. Yeah, and also being created for something that maybe she didn't want to be a partner. Maybe she didn't want to be um, a caretaker. And what happens when she rejects that role? Probabilities are high. She's going to be killed. Probably. It, at that time, Frankenstein's monster was very violent. And so... After, you know, talking about the plot and what happens, people loved the story. And Frankenstein has virtually limitless applicability as one of its central messages is that 
excess, whether it be Frankenstein's ambition or the monster's rage, generates repercussions. The story of Frankenstein's monster, for example, has been thought to represent the slave narrative, especially in the aftermath of the successful Haitian Revolution. Both Shelleys were well-read on the emancipation debate and were staunch abolitionists. The monster has also been identified as a metaphor for countless other people and developments from Irish nationalists to the United Kingdom Independence Party to artificial intelligence to genetically modified quote-unquote Frankenfood. The novel can also be seen as summing up humanity's relationship with the environment. Ambition and progress have resulted in what many see as unsustainable production methods, and we may ultimately suffer from the machinations of our own hands. I have to let that one sink. Let that sink in. I will. And I think you forgot to mention one thing when it comes to Franken. You forgot the Franken wiener. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the love of my life. But I mean, think about it, especially like what you said and what we talked and brushed on in the Industrial Revolution. Like even this summer with the Oppenheimer movie, if you guys didn't watch, it's a great movie. But in the end, there were repercussions. They were so focused on being the first, on getting the answer first, on being the ones that revolutionize science that they forgot to realize that once you ring that bell you can't unring it that's very true and you probably just you're running kind of like blindfolded right because you have this one achievement right in front of you this is where you're putting in all of your lifeblood just to come to a realization at the end when you are done not beforehand that what you have done or the implications that it will have in the future are maybe some you didn't expect because You were just focused on like creating something you were not taking into consideration for what it would have been used. Yeah. And remember, like we, the U.S. wasn't the only one trying to do it, trying to create the atomic bomb. It was other countries as well. We just got it there first. And if you read into the history, there are so many environmental and social repercussions that came out of this, yes, scientific creation revolution um but it ultimately you know harmed the surrounding people that lived there um kind of like you know chernobyl you know hundreds of years where people cannot even be close yeah. to that city that's very true so be careful when you are around atomic bombs be careful when you are creating things Mary Shelley, the esteemed author of Frankenstein, not only revolutionized the world of literature but also contributed to the inception of gothic feminism this movement arose from the realization that women face formidable adversaries both externally embodied by the lustful and greedy patriarchy and internally in the form of their consciousness of their sexual difference perceived as weakness gothic feminism imparts a crucial lesson the meek inherit the gothic earth The female gothic heroine invariably emerges victorious as melodramas are crafted to align with this version of poetic justice. The god of justice consistently intervenes, rectifying, validating, and rewarding suffering. And you see that in the story, the idea of creating Frankenstein's monster's partner. She wasn't really created, but Frankenstein thinks about all of those things that really the caretaker partner the more feminine woman partner has to do 
And ultimately, he intervenes as the god of justice and just saves her from coming into a world is not really for her in many, many ways. Right. And I think what's funny, it just came to my mind. Who knows if you create a new species, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be that the male partner has to be the dominant one, right? It can also be the female one. I mean, I don't have any examples on the top of my head. I think like, yeah, you don't really know which the male or the female will be the dominant one. But because she wrote it, of course, in the context of human history, I would say, and her experience, that was the pre-given nature of what the bride was supposed to be for and the expectation of Frankenstein's monster that he would receive. What was probably very common back in those days when it came to like family structure and uh, right. organization and split of tasks. Absolutely. And also because, you know, Gothic feminism really highlights this lustful and greedy patriarchy, you know, like who's putting us down? The man is basically what the Gothic female writers were feeling at that time, which is understandable in the 19th century. <laughs> Oh, I thought in our context. Cricket, cricket. <laughs> cut that out, cut that out. In Mary Shelley's life, her parents held sway as the real heroes or hero villains, so to speak. Their presence haunted her works, subtly influencing the narrative. Mary Wollstonecraft, despite leaving only two underdeveloped fictions and two indications birthed Mary Shelley, who went on to fulfill her mother's philosophical and literary visions. While Wollstonecraft might not have fully grasped the implications of her suggestion for women, Mary understood the repercussions of such behavior for both sexes. And I want to say that Mary Shelley's mom, Mary Wollstonecraft, was an extreme feminist, saying that, like, women have to act like men to be respected to be um given rights they cannot show an ounce of femininity they have to be basically dudes with the body of a woman that sounds fairly boring again wollstonecraft wanted that to be the ideal world but mary understood that well if you tell people that the only way to be respected is to be manlike, more masculine. The repercussions are that femininity and womanhood would be seen as less than, would be seen as not worthy of rights, not deserving of care, not deserving of respect. And that's something that she really counters her mom with. Mm, I agree. And it's also dangerous. I mean, at the end, if you don't have those behaviors, like actually female women and female behavior in society, how would that look like today, right? Right. And this idea just also perpetuates like external and internal misogyny, right? Like I cannot act feminine. I cannot act, you know, what we consider traditional feminine attributes, right i mean everyone holds both within them and it's just human attributes but we decided to put some in boxes that carried a long 
retribution, a long line of consequences. So within writing the pages of Frankenstein, Mary Shelley explores the notions of masculine and female creation, scrutinizing conventions, ideals, and practices. The novel unveils a stark contrast between the masculine quest for glory, often leading to destructive ends, and the female approach exemplified by Penelope in the Odyssey. And you're saying, okay, Gabby, we were just talking about Frankenstein. Now we're talking about the Odyssey. Well, Mary Shelley was very influenced by Penelope in the Odyssey. If you haven't read it, I'll give you a quick rundown. Basically, in the Odyssey, Penelope gets left behind to take care of the kids, take care of herself, and her husband goes off and is like, hey, I'm going to go on a quest. See you later. Gone for years. And Penelope survives. Not only survives, but she thrives. She raised the kids. She is successful in her society, in her place in society. She is well off financially. And she did it on her own because she had to. Because that was the role that was not just given to her, but thrust upon her. And it was like, eat or be eaten. And she was like, well, I got to go and I got to make a life for myself and for my family. And that's just like the, the differences of like, guys, go off and like have a quest and have like this ambitious want for glory. And really in the end, we see this character that's like, great, but I also did incredible things by myself, like Penelope did in The Odyssey. So Mary Shelley's text challenges the very essence of humanity, presenting a dual perspective, post-humanist and retrospective. It compels readers to question what truly defines humanity, prompting an examination of the voices marginalized or dismembered by progress. As Mary Shelley, pregnant for the third time, toiled to complete her literary project, she mirrored the discrepancy between masculine and female creation, which is what we've been talking about. The novel portrays the male's character failure to complete his task, paralleling the traditional gendered roles of parenting and artistic creation. So, again, she is really pointing at the fact of creation. She's really saying, like, yes, creation is important, but after we create something, we don't necessarily get the right to control it. Just like as parents, when you create a child, you don't really control your child. That's true. You can only like equip whatever it is that you are creating with the right mindset, with the right ideas to be set up. And then they have to figure it out. Is this who I am? Is this what I'm going to apply? Right. Or is it maybe not? Yeah, I mean, you know, how many times do we see parents who are very, you know, the typical example is parents who are very conservative in certain ways and their child grows up to be the complete opposite, you know, or vice versa. 
parents who are very, very extremely liberal in certain things and their child grows up to be very reserved and conservative. I mean, we just do not control our creations. Our creations control themselves. And she really wanted to point that out in the sense of womanhood, of, you know, she was pointing at like the story of creation itself that, you know, the Judeo-Christian story of Adam and Eve saying, hey, like the creation of women wasn't even asked for by women. It was a guy was lonely. In this specific book, yes. In this specific yeah. sense is how she's putting it. And it's like tribulations and all the things that women have to go through were a consequence of their own creation. So the narrative of Frankenstein also highlights Mary Shelley's educational reforms and underscores the transformative power of education in humanizing or dehumanizing the subject. The books read by the creature in Frankenstein offer means of articulating sensibility and the desire for love and community. Remember at the very, very beginning when I told you that Mary Shelley's stepmother did not send Mary to school. Right. But you also mentioned that like her mom and her dad, they had like a big library and stuff. So she was basically just reading through all of this and forming her very own opinion, which is probably even better than actually going to school or being taught if you are will to just take all of that knowledge. Uh, because right, and it's you create your biased. own. Exactly. You create your own thoughts and ideas granted we're all biased within our culture we're all biased within how we are raised and we have a certain perspective based on that but mary shelley taught herself to be articulate mary shelley taught herself to be you know a writer in many senses and frankenstein although frankenstein's monster although we see him as very like dumb and can only say like few words and groan in the book he's very very articulate he's very good with his words he understands a lot of complex concepts and he also teaches himself right i mean he's just listening to a family and he's that's how he starts off speaking or more speaking and reading all of those things, right? And that's also kind of like a parallel between him and Mary Shelley. Mm -hmm. That is why so many biographers say that this story is very autobiographical because although the characters, the main characters' voices are male, all the voices are actually from Mary Shelley in her ideas, in how she sees herself, in how she sees humanity, and how she sees men and women and this constant battle within herself and talking about her story where she wrote a lot about herself in this story in a very raw way that she doesn't do that much later in life this story is the raw version that we get of how does she really see herself how does she really see the world around her and the people around her And the losses that she's had from a very early age, it's it's very interesting to read um, because 
like I said, they're all technically male characters, but they're all female voices, which is in turn Mary Shelley's. The narrative of Walton, Frankenstein, and the creature converge as self-reproductions of pain, deprivation, and mutual destruction. The erasure of female figures mirrored in the aborted female creature in the novel reflects the unequal power dynamics inherent in traditional creation. Again, what we've talked about with the story of creation from the Bible. That's what she's kind of like pointing at. And again, back to Penelope from the Odyssey, both Penelope and the Odyssey and Mary Shelley share a unique form of creation, weaving and unweaving. Their artistry enables them to actively shape their destinies amidst predominantly masculine discourses, challenging conventional notions of female passivity. Isn't it also interesting that once you set the women free from the men, that they actually are, and I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but they are like forced to step up kind of, right? So they are like also, they can also do all of those things. They might not necessarily have to do it if they have a partner because he is going to take care of maybe like getting food or doing like back in those days, like the very challenging things. Um, But they are able to do it as well. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. You might think I'm crazy, but when people say that, they often go, well, men had to hunt and women had to gather. False. There are many, 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 many accounts where women hunted with men. And not because they had to. I mean, there were tribes where, yes, women had to do it and therefore they did it. But it was also because they could. Yeah, the I mean, majority of the times. It gives you an advantage as well, right? You have more people, you can probably better hunt like whatever it is you want to hunt, like split the group up of animals and that type of stuff. Right. So women were just as capable. Women did the same thing because they wanted to. Not because the men left and they had to step up, but because they were there. And a lot of the things, it's not that women have to step up. It's that women are allowed to, or women are free, is a better word, to do the things that they can do. Because typically what gets told or what gets expected from women, especially in these stories, is, well, you can't because that's not your job. That's the man's job. You shouldn't because that's the man's job. And what happens when there's no man? They can and they will do it. Because that talent has always been in them. It's not that they automatically or they just get it and they have to step up. They are able to do it all the time. This entire time they were able to do it, but they're like, well, they won't let me. And that's what we're talking about when they say that they actively shape their destinies. They don't let their culture, their society, their group of people tell them, this is what you can and cannot do. They're like, actually watch me let me do whatever i want to do and i think that that's such an important thing to say that we as people are so comfortable with boxes and patterns but really also capable of actively shaping our own destinies and i think it doesn't matter if you're man woman or whatever else 
main message is probably just like you can do what you want to do and you can achieve what you want to achieve no matter who you are or what you are absolutely absolutely and i think it's important to say this as well that the ideas that we have as people are better when we share them when we understand the world around us when we understand that we cannot live without the other we you and i cannot live without one another we couldn't and we couldn't live on this earth without the earth if we don't have a healthy earth we don't have food we don't have water we don't have the things that keep us safe and alive it's always a symbiotic relationship of there are things that we can carry better together yeah the one cannot be without the other absolutely and that's why mary shelley's exploration of gothic feminism and creation in frankenstein transcends conventional literary boundaries through her meticulous dissection of gender roles parental influence and societal structures through her meticulous dissection of gendered roles parental influence and societal constructs she leaves an indelible mark on feminist discourse paving the way for powerful reinterpretations of female agency and creation wonderful summary thank you and that's all i have on mary shelley and i know that you guys want to listen a little longer for our story and so daniel has some stuff that he researched that he wants to share specifically on this topic right it's not that deep of in research but it's definitely like a leap in the conversation we are going to have um away from not away from mary shelley right but like also what it costs in nowadays society and all the things we already touched a little bit based on like pop culture and those things mm -hmm. like i had a look and i don't have a number in my head but there are movies out from frankenstein bride of frankenstein i think even son of frankenstein also shrek 2 has a reference to frankenstein who shrek 2 shrek you know shrek's like just ahead of time They were our inspiration for the podcast, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just joking. But it's really interesting to see like that those topics and the ideas always get chewed up, maybe like in a different context, right? Of like how, what, what time mm -hmm. are you looking at it, right? If you produce a movie, 1930s, 1940s about Frankenstein, it will probably cover different aspects different behaviors of characters and how you want them to be perceived from the audience right compared to maybe if you would do the movie nowadays compared to um the bride of frankenstein in hotel transylvania yeah where she's voiced by um, fran drescher <laughs> like, she's so funny in that movie i love it yep so there are just like so many implications for today and it's just funny like try to keep up with like the pop culture try to keep up with like all the movies that are out there and mm -hmm. see what you really feel like how how would people back in those days or people today perceive the messages the acting the content and the ideas that are presented how would they perceive it yeah and also the 1930s movie of frankenstein 
was so so iconic especially like how they made frankenstein look that that is how sticked until now right it, it stuck until now and in the book he does not have a square head and like bolts on the side of his neck like <laughs> that is not what he looks like in the way that we imagine when we say hey imagine frankenstein's monster what does he look like you're like uh he's green um yeah no that's not green with the bus cut <laughs> green with the bus cut <laughs> yeah like imagine like how iconic he is that like if i tell you hey imagine frankenstein in your mind yeah it's like what you were describing because that's exactly. just like the pictures that you are seeing all over when you hear it or when it's halloween or whatever it is you mm -hmm. always have that type of picture in mind and we saw so many frankensteins during halloween i'm sorry i bailed and i flew to germany on the 31st so i actually missed my first american halloween But I do want to say like a quick little minute on Daniel that he did go to see the Chiefs game. That's true. In Germany. First NFL game that Outside I ever the watched. US. And I flew from the US to Germany to watch it. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. And for those of you who are probably asking and are dying to know... Yes, Daniel did wear his Taylor Swift shirt to the game. I did. And there was actually like another guy. They were, I don't know, they just had like this big sign. And it was like, uh, where are you, Taylor? Flew all the way from Texas. It was incredible. I was like, dang, all the Swifties went to Germany just to get a glimpse of Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen her. I don't know if she really was there. Probably not. But, you know, it counts that you think about it it counts that you saw travis kelsey i did true <laughs> well uh we just want to thank you guys all again for listening that's all for today we are so excited for you guys to listen to our next episode i know we have been posting our episodes on friday however we are changing it to mondays um so if you guys are a little bit confused as to why we skipped a week um is so that way we could reset and have our episodes now come out on mondays yay yay uh and remember follow us give us like and leave us a review on wherever you listen to our podcast we really appreciate it and thank you all again for listening yeah thank you guys and as i said at the beginning like if you have suggestions feel free gabby mentioned the uh, names you can send it to on our instagram stories of s's and then our email address stories of s's at gmail.com so feel free to reach out we are not going to ignore you guys and really appreciate it so have a good time have a great one everyone bye cheers <laughs>